He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? Welcome to Munson's at the Movies. My name is Kyle. I'll once again be your host, joined by the rest of the Munson's. I want to give them a wide berth. He's what is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> and talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. Case, you're up first. Morning the uh, passing of some great ones. In no particular order, lost Cloris Leachman, Cicely Tyson, and Screech. I'm not sure what Screech's first name was, but we lost him in... And it's a uh, it's tough time in the uh, celebrity world, I guess. Mm-hmm. Wait, time out. Cloris Leachman died. She did. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. What the shit? What's wild about Cicely Tyson? She was on tour promoting her memoirs on Tuesday, and she passed away on Thursday. Hustling till the end. Good for her. I guess. Yeah, when the news about Leachman came out, everybody was telling all these random stories about her. And apparently she told the story of this one night romp she had with Jack Nicholson back in the day. And how <laughs> in, impressed she was by his uh, his bed skills. So, Interesting. there you go. A guy we'll talk about here tonight at a, at a certain point. So. She was fucking hilarious. Yeah, she's awesome. I hope we have more Jack Nicholson dick talk tonight. Her and Beer Fest is just epic. <laughs> <laughs> I totally forgot about that. <laughs> James. Uh, Cancel my wedding for like the third time. So I think we're just going to stop planning a wedding. I think at this point, you guys definitely owe me three gifts. <laughs> Other than that, you'll be getting no more invitations. And uh, love is dead. All right, cool. Fair enough. Oh, God. Follow that one up, Warren. I'm in the middle of my third draft for a movie talking about game stock that I'm selling to Netflix currently. <laughs> <laughs> Because there are not enough movies about short squeezes and all that other bullshit. Anybody who wants to write a movie or has something to add about a bunch of virgins manipulating the market, you know, go ahead and send your ideas my way. <laughs> Warren, the screenwriter, taking all of your ideas. Let's go. <laughs> Love it. Rigby. Uh, yeah, same old, same old. Also, rest in peace to Larry King. He died oh, that's right. a while back. Oh, that's right. He was one of my favorites. He always had my dream job, just to sit down and ask celebrities Questions and just let them talk to you for an hour. I think that'd be a pretty cool job. And having 11 wives? Not 11 wives. I was about to say, I, I think he's got more wives than we have episodes at this point. <laughs> Trying to figure out his will was probably a nightmare for his attorney, but. <laughs> oh, good grief, yeah. Going to be a lot of, lot of pissed off people on that one, I'm sure. <laughs> they had to bring Neil deGrasse Tyson in to do that. <laughs> oh, man. My end, I just wrapping up the 2021 Sundance Film Festival from the the seat of my couch and that's uh it's been relaxing and cheap comparatively to the the previous year. I've enjoyed that. I don't know really yet which films people need to look out for like is there a whiplash coming out of Sundance? I don't know. There's a lot of other films some will see the light of day others no one will ever hear about and that's just film festivals in a nutshell. But we're not running without a guest this week it's just us, just the old Munsons. <laughs> birthdays warren what do we got first off we got natalie dormer from the tu- the tutors game of thrones captain america hunger games and casanova 30 i'm gonna go 33 28 going the under hmm dang it you guys are all over the place let me go Did somebody say 32 no well craig gets 32 she's 39 
Oh, holy what? hell. Yeah. Damn, good for her, man. She yeah. looks great. Very good. Next up, we got Jennifer Aniston. Friends, Office Space, Horrible Bosses, We're the Millers, and Mac and Me. <laughs> she, it was her first role. She was uncredited in the movie Mac and Me. <laughs> <laughs> the legend herself is 55. Oh, man. Give me 51. 50. I'm going to go older. I'm going to go 57. 52. Kyle gets it with 51. Nice. Dang. She has not aged one bit. She looks better now than she did 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah, I agree. I think she's gotten more attractive with age. She's got like the Paul Rudd effect. It looks better with age. Sure. Uh, yeah, sure. Paul Rudd of all the actors to choose. Yeah. <laughs> she's compared all the time to Paul Rudd. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, think, <laughs> I think Jennifer Anderson, I go Paul Rudd immediately. Yeah, every now and then I actually call her Jennifer Rudd because I get them confused. Stop pretending like people don't constantly <laughs> talk about Paul Rudd and the fact he doesn't age killing me over here james <laughs> that's the quantum effect oh yeah the, the ant-man effect i like it yeah last up we got damian lewis uh billions homeland once upon a time in hollywood uh, your highness and the 2014 version of romeo and juliet with Haley steinfeld stellan skarsgård and paul giamatti which i didn't know existed <laughs> it's, it's so eerily specific yeah that doesn't sound like a movie that does exist. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to still go 48. 52, Warren. 53. I'm shooting low. Give me 45. 50. James gets it with the first Nice. Game. Damn it. <sighs> February 11th, good day. Also is Burt Reynolds, Leslie Nielsen, and Taylor Lautner. Oh, wow. But uh, didn't want to do the first two. Just uh, rest in peace, Angels. Big Taylor Lautner podcast. I was going to say, Taylor Lautner hasn't died yet, right? Where He's still alive. Who cares? Yeah, in my opinion, he died at the end of Grown Ups, too. <laughs> Maybe his career died, but not him. Per the usual, we threw five actors onto that wheel. We're recording this before we put out the wheel onto the social media sphere. So we don't know if we're going to have the flock there coming or the tunny honeys coming to our yeah, doorstep. So the Robin tunny <laughs> Here's my question to you all. Of the four that it wasn't, Gleason, Levy, Deutsch, and Sumter, a little uh, Nostradamus action here. Who do you think is going to come with the biggest fan collection, like random fan accounts? Which of those four might flood us? Zoe. Zoe, I think. Yeah. Think Deutsch? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was I was going to say that too. Because I feel uh, like she'd have the most millennial followers. The Deutschmarks with uh, Zoe. What does that mean? What does millennial <laughs> followers mean? James, aren't we? We're millennials, right? <laughs> yeah, we are firmly. So she has people our age that are going to follow. Okay. Yeah, that are that are going to have the fan accounts. I feel like that's more that's more <laughs> up their alley. All right, so she has the target market for this podcast, is what you're saying. I think <laughs> I think we're actually going to get a bunch of uh, shitheads for Eugene Levy. Yep. That was yep. going to be mine. Oh, I think. good. The American Pie franchise. Yeah, some pie fuckers. Keep in mind, the Flocklier and the Tunny Honeys are for actors who are a little bit older in the game. And Deutsch is pretty young. So I'm, I'm looking at like Levy, the Schitt's Creek fans. That group might slam us in the next couple of days. Mm-hmm. But everybody knows that it should be Gleason. Neither here nor there. The answer for our episode and the wheel has chosen Angelica Houston. She's got about 100 credits on her career. Uh, she's directed three films, which we'll talk about today. Has done a bunch of other things, but I'm not going to give those away because, as always, we give James a chance to stump us when it comes to actor trivia. Absolutely. While we were discussing that, I had pizza dropped off, so I, my mouth is watering right now for some pizza, but also <laughs> for some Angelica Houston facts. So let me hit you with them. Um, as always, two truths and a lie. One of these is going to be a lie about one of the stars of the Fast and Furious franchise. The other two are going to be facts about Angelica Houston's wildlife. 
So fact number one, her birthday falls on February 29th, which means that most years she doesn't have a birthday. Fact number two, great American author John Steinbeck once dressed up as Santa Claus and visited her family on Christmas. <laughs> fact number three, her family is one of only two families in history to have three generations of Oscar winners. Hmm. I'm going to go number two is the lie. You've really stumped me on this one. And I'm going to take a guess and being that pretty much everyone has ever been in a Fast and Furious movie, I'm going to say it's Viola Davis is the lie as number one. <laughs> Just taking stabs at random actors now at this point. <laughs> All right, give me, uh, I, I think it was Clint Eastwood, and I'm going fact one as well, because he was, and I don't know, he was an extra on Tokyo Drift. <laughs> Clint Eastwood was definitely not in Tokyo Drift. <laughs> yeah, I think you're talking about his son, who's definitely in it, but I'm going yes. with Gar- Gary Scott Thompson uh, for number three. And Gary Scott Thompson was the creator of the original Fast and Furious. Oh, RIP to the king himself, Gary Scott Thompson. He's still alive. <laughs> yeah, but you know, he should rest at this moment. Are you serious? <laughs> Clint Eastwood's son was in Tokyo Drift? Uh, he's in a movie. I don't know if it's that one in particular. How old is his son? 75 years old? Yeah, I just picked a random old-ass actor. Scott Eastwood. Okay. Did anyone guess number three? I did. Okay, so you'd be wrong. Her family is actually one of only two families in history to have three generations of Oscar winners. Uh, The Coppolas are the other for their involvement with the Godfather Mm -hmm. movies. But Angelica's grandfather, Walter, was an actor, and her father, John, of course, was an acclaimed director, both of which won Academy Awards for their work in The Treasure of Sierra Madre, while Angelica took home the (laughs) award for Prizzy's Honor, which we'll discuss later. Fact number two was in fact true. John Steinbeck did visit her family. He was friends with her father, visited her family in Ireland on Christmas, and because he was coming on Christmas, decided to dress up as Santa. Not everyone has an interesting childhood quite like she did. It wasn't always glamorous, but that's about as glamorous as it gets right there. Fact number one, her birthday is not February 29th. Yes. Uh, Ja Rule's birthday is February 29th. He was the star of the first Fast and the Furious movie, as well as the Fire Festival documentary. (laughs) Does that make Ja Rule like 15? Yes, he Benjamin Buttons every year. So he, (laughs) I believe, is actually six years old. (laughs) And James, fact-checking you, Viola Davis is born on August 11th. So that was a wrong guess on my part. So you're correct. Good to know. Good to know. I don't know how to feel about this. I didn't know Ja Rule was still alive. He lived forever. He's not rapping, I don't think. I guess he's just dealing in bad musical festivals and dealing with fucking cryptocurrency or something. Who knows? All right, Case, tell us a little bit about her snapshot and box office history. For as big of a name as Angelica Houston is with her family, and as accomplished as she is in her career, and the amount of movies that she was in, she doesn't really have any big poppers and like some of the other ones have had. The movies that she has done the best in, no surprise, would be the Adams Family movies. Kyle, when did she, what was her first film credit? 67? Uh, yeah. From 1967 all the way until, until 2002 was the first time that she ever had a movie that had over a $50 million budget. Before that, she had about 15 to 20 that were less than 15 million. She's so accomplished. I I was surprised, though, that some of the more successful films didn't have bigger budgets. It was uh, Bloodwork in 2002 that was the first one that she did. But other than that, you guys, it's it's pretty straightforward. Comparing her to the other actors and actresses, she ranks 29th IMDb popularity. And she doesn't rank well 
in terms of box office stuff, but she does rank pretty high in both critic and fan ranking, which are ranked fifth and eighth, respectively. I think the movies she she's in are well received by both critics and fans. But that's the other part too is that she was most prominent in an era where I don't think the number one goal was to make as much money as you can. I think they wanted to make money, but I don't think that was the driving factor. You know, similar to Renee Russo, you know, she didn't have any huge box office movies in that in her heyday. Um, and, and I think Angelica Houston falls into that same category. So she's dead last in IMDb star meter of all the actors we've covered. She is dead last. Really? She has a star meter at time of recording of 3,629. And 28th place is held by the one and only my man with the towel, Craig Robinson, who at time of recording was 3,427. Craig Robinson finally got out of the cellar in the IMDb star meter rating. <laughs> All right, thanks, Case. All right, before we get to first feature film, as James had mentioned, just kind of a a wild life. Um, it's hard to uh, to encapsulate everything that she's done and experienced when you're born in that into that kind of Hollywood film and television royalty. But to kind of hit some of the highlights, you know, Walter John Huston, her dad's nominated for ten Oscars uh, as a director. He did movies like The Maltese Falcon, African Queen. She was born while he was filming African Queen. She was went to a convent until she was 11. And then she spent most of her early days, her adolescence in Ireland, growing up there with novelists, socialites, ambassadors, mm-hmm. countesses, celebrities, all sorts of people. And she narrated a documentary in 2007 about the Irish country house, tying back to her, her background and growing up there. Her first acting role was in a, a performance of Macbeth in her living room where she caught the eye of Peter O'Toole. You know, just a casual person just being in your, your living room when you're a kid. <laughs> and that's where she got noticed. After that, she moved to London. Her parents' divorce or lack of divorce is very complicated. James might be able to add some additional thoughts to that. But her brother, Danny Houston, is someone that you all might recognize as an actor and a director. He's the main vampire in uh, 30 Days a Night. That's how I, high up. I always recognize him. I'm sure there are better roles that you should tie to him. Yeah, I didn't realize they were related, and I've seen him multiple times. Like, oh, damn, wow, I didn't realize she was close with that guy. (laughs) And now I realize they have the same last name, and I'm a fucking idiot. But she started her modeling career. That's where she got her early start, and I put her on the map. But her first role, as Craig mentioned, she was in, very briefly, in Casino Royale in 67. Mm -hmm. That is the first of five films she did with her father, but very minor, um, then she was photographed for Vogue magazine in 1968. And then she was in another of her father's films, A Walk with Love and Death. And that film, she says now that she wished she hadn't done it. She wanted to take on the role in Romeo and Juliet, had read for it. Um, her father convinced her to take on this role, and she had said that she just wasn't ready for her father's directorial style, and it just was not a good experience. To the point where John Simon, a critic, had said she was supremely inept in that role. And I watched some of it on YouTube. She is not very good. I mean, 
understandably so. She's like 18 years old, 17 years old when she films it, but she might have actually been 15 at the time. She was 16. Pretty early on. That's her second film with her father. She does another one same year, Sinful Davy with John Huston. And at that time, she was with a man who was like 23 years older than her for four years. And then she moved to New York City for her modeling career to pursue that further after she met Jack Nicholson. And that kind of started the Jack Nicholson era where she was basically dating him on and off for about 17 years and did five different films with him, which included One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, very short, brief appearance in that. She was in The Last Tycoon. The Postman Always Rings Twice in 81. Also in there, fun little fact, there's a nugget you can find online where she was apparently a witness to some of Roman Polanski's abuse, because I guess they crossed Mm. the same circles at that point in time. And she also got busted for cocaine at that point. If she's 18 dating guys who are 50, I'm not shocked she bumps into Roman <laughs> Polanski's crew. It's only a matter of time. Despite having like this glitz and glamour from afar kind of upbringing, like her life was tough. Yeah. You know, her mom was a ballerina and her dad is this Hollywood, you know, star when it comes to directing. And she never saw either of them. And her mother yeah. passed away from a car accident. And so she had to live with her father. And she said, like, yeah, he would say, oh, my God, my children are my life. They motivate, you know, they're everything. They're the reason I do all this. And she's like, we never saw anything like that. You know, he was an absent father. He just paid bills, essentially. You know, he cheated on her mother. They fought all the time. That's why she has so many half brothers and sisters, including Danny Houston, who you mentioned. She attributes her relationship with her parents to kind of the failing romantic relationship she's had throughout her life where she's been attracted to men who treat her poorly and she's like it's Mm -hmm. i'm the clear test case for psychiatry on how your parents can affect your love life because that is exactly what happened to her where her dad treated her like shit growing up and it was by the time she was 18 she's dating guys who are 50 who treat her like shit yeah kyle you were talking about her husband believe that was her photographer, wasn't it? I believe so. When she started her modeling career? Yep. And then they used to hang out with Andy Warhol. How fucking crazy is that? All I can think <laughs> of is Bill Hader as Andy Warhol. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> he's a time traveler, and he's like, I just took a picture of a can of soup, and everyone thinks I'm a genius. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Any other actor, Craig, that if we were talking about, if you were like, hey, Craig Robinson or someone used to hang out with Andy Warhol, I'd be like, you're fucking crazy. But knowing the people that she was surrounded with growing up, it makes complete sense. 100%. Yeah. Um, she got busted for cocaine in 77, got out of it. Nothing ever came from it. But I guess, you know, you hang out with those types. That's going to happen in the late 70s. Dude, you get busted for cocaine in the 70s. You could be president. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> in the Hollywood scene, I'm sure that was pretty normal. She just happened to be one of those people that got busted for it, I suppose. Mm-hmm couple appearances on Laverne and Shirley, and then had a, at least a, one scene, I don't know, multiple scenes, and this is Spinal Tap, 84. She's the artist that made the Stonehenge sculpture that was only <laughs> 18 inches high. <laughs> Didn't they ask for 18 feet? Well, no, it said 18 inches on the, on the napkin, and she's like, well, this is what you wrote on the napkin. And he's like, haven't you ever heard of Stonehenge? She's like, well, well, yeah, but you said 18 inches. And so in order order to even try to salvage it, (laughs) they brought dwarfs out. Yeah, they brought in dwarfs. Dwarfs to dance around, and they're tripping on wires. (laughs) And it's really funny. The funny part is, because I hadn't seen it in a long time, and so I had to look up what she was in. And as, like, the Stonehenge... This culture starts coming down it, because of forced perspective. It actually looks normal. And then you just see the guitarist's face looking at it like, what 
the fuck is that? And it just sits 18 inches off the ground. <laughs> yeah, I read that it was some kind of meta joke on uh, a similar incident with Black Sabbath at one point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, something similar. I think that's a lot of the jokes on Spinal Tap is they're all based off of like actual shit that has happened to rock bands. Mm-hmm. And the last thing before first feature film, she turned down uh, Daryl Hannah's role in Splash 1984. I've never mm. seen Splash, so I don't know if that's a good decision or not. You all can tell me. Yes. So would it start opposite of Tom Hanks? Yeah, that's interesting because that, that movie put Daryl Hannah on the map. Yeah. And at that point, I don't know, Angelica Houston had somewhat established herself, I think. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see the, the contrast between the two. Didn't yeah. know that. Well, she certainly established herself in uh, 85 with her first feature film, that's Prizzy's Honor. And I'm covering it. It's another film directed by her dad, John Huston, adapted from a, a novel. He is still to this day the oldest director to ever be nominated for an Oscar at 79 years old, to the point where he was directing with an oxygen tank pretty much the entire film. Oh, damn. That had to be an interesting experience for everybody involved. High scores on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes for audiences and critics. The cast includes six Oscar nominees. Uh, Jack Nicholson, Kathleen Turner, Robert Loggia, William Hickey, Angelica Houston, and a quick debut from Stanley Tucci, which I could not find. He plays a soldier, and I come through that movie, and I could not find his role. But apparently he's in there. I literally just watched it today. Tucci's not in that movie. <laughs> he's probably got a full mane of hair, and that's why I didn't recognize him. I guess. Yeah, we're looking for the bald guy with glasses and struggling mightily, I guess. But the movie was nominated for eight Oscars. Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Best Picture, Costume Design, Supporting Actor, and Editing. The crazy part is, when the studio put this thing out, they had super low expectations. They really didn't think it was going to turn into much. Joke's on them. It was a huge sleeper hit that year. It's billed as a dark comedy. I never really got much of a comedic sense from it. Maybe there's a few jokes here and there, but it kind of turns the mafia-related storylines on its head a little bit, especially with Angelica Houston's character. Basic gist, Charlie knocks off Irene's husband. She happens to be an assassin, too, and she gets paid to knock him off, and it's two assassins who fall in love and then have to are told to kill each other. That's that's the basic gist of the movie. It grossed $26 million on a $60 million budget. Angelica plays Mae Rose, who is only on screen for, I think, 16% of the runtime is what I saw. But her, the movie largely revolves around her character's plight. And she won uh, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in the role. Um, she beat out some heavyweights that year, too, including Oprah in The Color Purple. You know, she learned her Brooklyn accent by going to a Brooklyn church, apparently, her character is very manipulative, very stoic. She's got a, a smirk that she rocks constantly. She's pretty captivating. I felt her character. I was kind of blown away that this movie had been nominated for so many awards that it had been. I thought it was like a good 80s romantic drama-ish, right? Mr. and Miss Smith in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good, like good call, great, Warren. Wow, good call. Warren. Yeah, yeah, that nails it. I never watched it, but just based off of what you said, that's exactly what I get from <laughs> it. I thought it was like a unique story, but I was blown away. It was so successful uh, because, I mean, I wasn't super captivated, but great actors were in it and a uh, unique story, and that's all I got from it. And then I see it wins all these awards and I was blown away. And one uh, interesting little tidbit that came from this is her winning her Academy Award for this has actually sparked a maintained feud between her and Oprah. Yeah. (laughs) So it's one-sided ever since Angelica beat out Oprah for the Best Supporting Actress, where Oprah was nominated for The Color Purple. 
she's been shunned by Oprah, never been invited to her show. They haven't spoken since. And uh, she's only seen her in person once since then at a party. And uh, Angelica Houston's talking to Clint Eastwood at this party. <laughs> and Oprah steps in between them, cuts their conversation off with her back to Angelica Houston and starts talking to Clint Eastwood and never acknowledges her. And after that, Houston's like, fuck this girl. Yeah, I'm, I, like, <laughs> I don't need to talk to Oprah. I don't give a shit. Yep. It's been like, what are we looking at? 40 30 years? Yeah. 30 years? Yeah, yeah it's a like, long time. The, until that moment, it had been 30 years. She ignored her for 30 years. Wow. It's not like she said, vote for me. It, this is what yeah. happens. Yeah. Is the first 20 minutes just really slow or is that just me? It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I love gangster movies like you mentioned, Kyle. And uh, to see sort of a satire of them with, you know, assassins and stuff, I probably should have stuck with it. But I don't know. I just wasn't into it. And I love Kathleen Turner, especially 80s Kathleen Turner. Yeah. But I don't know. Not not for me. Her character as the like mafia boss's daughter is much more empowered than a lot of the other films of that era. And she has some agency to her. She's kind of making her own decisions. And she's doing like, like I said, manipulative. Her character is basically moving the story along by being an asshole. Yeah, she's scheming. Uh, because she felt that she was set aside by the family and had her heart broken by Jack Nicholson's character. Those kinds of things. So I haven't watched enough mafia movies to be able to compare and contrast. The tone is completely different than most mafia movies because it's way more lighthearted. Like there is the potential of someone being killed, but it's looked at from the lens of Jack Nicholson's in love with a hit woman, I guess. And his ex is Angelica Houston, who just kind of hates her dad because he's treated her like shit. So she's scheming, but it's not like dark where no. you're fearful. It's more like I'm intrigued to see where the story is going. So I think the tone is different than almost all mob movies I've seen. And the movie ends back to her character. It all comes full circle to mm-hmm. Nicholson's doing his thing. I don't want to spoil anything for you, Rig, because you might want to finish it after this. I know. It definitely comes back around to her at the end but for her earlier in her career getting an oscar at this point in what we're calling her first feature film she's pretty good i mean you could criticize the movie for x y and z but her lines are pretty poetic theatrical she's got some really emotional scenes oprah's probably pissed but i don't think angelica didn't deserve it at that point in time do you know who else was uh considered for the role who she had to beat out uh it was Cher. that's right because she's competed with Cher for a number of roles over the years Mm -hmm. yep would you say prissy's honor was john houston's last movie or was, no. was he just really sick during he was really sick during that his his gotcha. last movie is we're, we're going to talk about here in a, in a gotcha minute. gotcha so that's pretty easy on her first feature film between 86 and 88 she does some interesting things uh she is in captain eo as the supreme leader which is a very unique role for her captain eo was ba- basically created by george lucas and francis ford coppola for like the disney properties and it has michael jackson playing kind of like a ship captain star wars style and she plays the alien creed like the alien leader in there so very different than a lot of the other stuff she's done it's available on youtube it's about 20 minutes long you can check it out if you were not old enough like me to go to disney properties and see it in 1986 so um but after that, she did another Francis Ford Coppola film in Gardens of Stone in 87, and then was in her dad's last film, The Dead, in 1987, which she developed Epstein-Barr syndrome on set because it was so stressful. But her character's got some good emotional depth in that one. Cole Meany is in there, a younger Cole Meany on set. But that film is very Irish-centric and is something that I know her and her father were very proud of, given their background from being from there. 
very fitting movie for his last one to be with his son. <laughs> the dead. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I think it's based on the novel that they adapted. And- I was actually saying it was fitting because it, they got to talk about their hair or they got to honor their heritage and it was his last movie. But and then you, then you mentioned it was the dead and, uh, Kind of caught my eye, so that was unintentional, Kyle. 1988, she's in a handful of dust as Mrs. Rattery, a cameo, but a, a critic I read said it's the sting- single most stunning performance of that particular project. And then she's in Mr. North as Persis, which she has only a few scenes, but for every time she's on screen, she's magnetic, she steals them, she's very elegant and mysterious. It's not really about her character, but she does pretty good in that. And that takes us all the way to 1989's Crimes and Misdemeanors. It is highest critic score. And Rigby is going to love to talk to us about a little Woody Allen. So Crimes and Misdemeanors from director Woody Allen is an 89 comedy drama, I would say. Uh, I say that because the movie has two narratives. One is, one is more of a tragedy and the other is a comedy. The tragedy narrative follows a man named Judah, who's played by Martin Landau. He's a successful eye doctor who's caught up in an affair with a woman threatening to expose the affair and his illegal financial activities. And the woman that he's having the affair with is Dolores, played by Angelica Houston. Woody Allen has the other narrative, and it's funny, and it's about heartbreak and romance, and it's a, it's a comedic one. But the, the Woody Allen plot's a funny and amusing, but I think it's, it's, the, it's the Judah plot that steals the movie for me because... I don't know if you guys have seen this, but the level of anxiety through the whole scope of that story is amazing to me. And I don't think it would have been possible without Angelica Houston's performance as Dolores. She kind of hooks you from the moment. The first time you hear her voice is when Judah opens a letter that she sent to his wife to try to expose the affair. And you hear it in her voice like she's very unstable and vindictive and unforgiving and you kind of get the sense right away that she's really going to stop at nothing to expose her affair with him. A lot of their relationship is shown in present day and flashbacks, kind of a very common theme in Woody Allen movies. But so the, the buildup to this is like, is she going to expose him? What, what, what is she going to do next? And then the plot takes a pretty dark turn when Judah decides that the only way to get rid of her is to have her killed. He lives in Connecticut. The scene where he drives down to her apartment in the city to confirm that he she's actually dead after he gets the call that he sets it up. He sets up her murder by having her his brother hire these gangsters to do it. And so when his brother calls and said it's done, he like still can't believe himself that he actually put himself through it. And so when he goes down to look at it, that's like one of the most like dreadful feeling movie scenes that I can recall in a while. He realizes like how he actually was capable of doing this to another human being. The movie hits on very familiar Woody Allen themes, as I mentioned, a lot of stuff in flashbacks, but it also has common themes such as regret, guilt, moral dilemmas. I'll just say, first off, I love this movie. I kind of always have. And I know there's a lot of people that are disgusted by the allegations against Allen. Obviously, I am too. You know, in today's day and age, there's we kind of have our own little moral dilemma about how you can separate someone's art with their personal behavior. It's a debate I have every time I, I watch a Woody Allen movie. So I'm understanding of p- why people are reluctant to like this movie and other parts of Woody Allen's work. That being said, I've always loved movies about moral dilemmas and the consequences that come with decisions that people choose to make. So in that regard, I'll always hold this movie in, in, in high standing in my eyes. And I think it, there's a reason that it's up there with some of Woody Allen's movies. And he even says that. He says, this is one of the best films I made. Because it really does 
and we can talk about the final scene because the final scene is sort of what gets you at the end. But um, I don't know. That's just how I feel about it. It's we haven't really gone into Woody Allen in depth in this podcast, and I don't really know if we should. So I'll leave that up to to you guys to discuss that. But that's just how I feel about it. But really good movie, and I hope you get the chance to watch it. She's great in it. She's super like. I think Kyle, you texted me. You're like, she's a little over the top. I'm like, I think that's, I think that's definitely intentional because she was supposed <laughs> yeah. to see, like, for this guy to go through the links to do this, she had to be over the top, and she had to be like, threatening him in a way that he felt like this was his only option to take. And obviously, it was like <laughs> the worst fucking thing you could have chosen. But like, he had to have. He was like so on the edge that someone had to push him there. And I think she did a really good job in doing that. I think to go off um, what you had mentioned, Rigby is. I had not seen a Woody Allen movie growing up. And by the time I was made aware of who he was, it was during the time that all of this information was in the public eye in regards to how much of a creep he is. And so I never went back and watched his, even his good movies, right? Like, like this is based on the reviews I'm reading. People consider this his best or one of his best in the running. And it's just so hard for me to motivate myself to watch it knowing yeah. who is the person behind it, right? And yep. separating someone's art from their personal life, I think, was a lot easier to do back in the day. And I just find it almost impossible now for me. It's the R. Kelly effect. Right. It's like, I loved R. Kelly's music when I was younger. I'm never going to listen to it again. And I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. And with a movie like this... I think it's okay to say it's a great movie, but I don't have the urge to go see it because of who he is. And that's why I said I'm, I'm understanding of people's reluctancy to even watch it, let alone like acknowledge it. If you're interested and you want to watch it, it's all pieced up in like 13 parts on YouTube. And he also, because it's probably not legal, he's not going to get any residuals for it. So, you know, do that. For what yeah. you wish, and that's crimes and misdemeanors. Well, not the first uh, Woody Allen film she did. We'll talk about another one here in a couple minutes. Um, so, before Largest Critic Gap, uh, '89, a couple projects of note. First, she's in Enemies, a love story is Tamara. Um, she was nominated for uh, an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress, so another nomination. It's a really interesting story about uh, a couple who survived the Holocaust. And the husband comes back and ends up marrying their housekeeper, um, Polish housekeeper. And then he finds out his wife is actually still alive and comes back over, played by Angelica Houston. And he's also, while he was with the housekeeper, he had been messing around on the side with another woman. So that's why it's called Enemies, a love story, because he's trying to balance three different women at once, including his once believed to be dead wife, who was in the Holocaust. But she lost to the Bird Lady that year for Best Supporting Actress. She the lost Bird to Lady? Brenda Fricker. Brenda Fricker. She lost to Brenda oh, Fricker. Oh, Brenda Fricker. Warren, your girl. Bingo. From my uh, left foot. Who? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Ebert loved her in that role. And that, that was good. I, I enjoyed in that, that role as well. And then she was also in Lonesome Dove as Clara in 89. That particular project, she got two Golden Globe noms for Best Supporting Actress. And that also had Robert Duvall, Danny Glover, Tommy Lee Jones, Chris Cooper. I mean, just a stacked, stacked cast. And it has incredibly high ratings if you check it out online. Mm-hmm. And that takes us to Largest Critic App, which is one of her definitely more well-known roles in 1990s, The Witches. And Warren has it. So I, I kind of went back and forth as I watched this. And I, I didn't get to watch the new one with Anne Hathaway. 
which apparently is like big old piece of shit. I think to its core, a little bit more accurate with the book, except they're mm. just updating it time, like you know, making it a little bit more culturally relevant. But, I mean, there's there's bits of the, and bits and pieces that they give and take. So. Uh, this movie, it's basically there are witches and they have a plot to turn all the boys in London, little boys to uh, rats. This little boy named Luke and his grandma, who's an ex-witch hunter, are going to stop them. And it takes place mainly in a hotel. And there's not really a need to get into like the finer details yeah. of like the, the plot, just because A, it doesn't really tie out with the book, and B, it's just you know a bunch of fluff. There were things that I really enjoyed. They filmed with actual rats, like running around and like interacting with people, like walking, but be- running between their feet while people were walking. They did a really good job between that. And even though it's really shitty and it's like 30 years old, but like the animatronic mice talking where they're basically puppets. <clears throat> But they still do a really good job of going back and forth between the two. And this is uh, Jim Henson's last movie that he was on set for. (laughs) And so he was a producer. He did all the prosthetics and stuff for the witches. Um, And like Angelica Houston is uh, the Grand High Witch. Took her like eight hours to get into all that prosthetics and makeup and everything to film those scenes, which I think Jesus. she only ended up doing that once. Uh, I don't know if they filmed it all in one day. I sure as hell hope they did. It's not really a kid's movie. Like no, if, you, if a, little kid were, a little kid were to watch this movie, they'd be pretty fucking terrified. Pretty dark, man. They're killing little kids pretty, at a pretty uh, successful rate throughout the yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like Ernest scared stupid. A oh, little bit. I love bit. it. Yeah. She's good in the movie. Um, for me, it, it's just like knowing what I've seen her play and everything else, she's the exact same person, but with like a German-ish accent. But she, she does have like her good part when she's like leading all the witches and she's just running that on her own. She's great. Then the rest of it's just her standing there and looking, you know, slightly devious and maniacal. You know, they're not really asking her to do much, but she is the draw and she is the person that everybody remembers from this. Nobody else in this movie, you, you would recognize their names. You know, to see that on Rotten Tomatoes, it was a 93 and a 70. I'm a little below the audience, but not by much. Like, it's it's actually, I did enjoy it. And, you know, I had to remember, this is the time frame at which it came out. And they did a pretty good job with it. But what I really would have liked to have seen was I did some research on the movie. And the director, Nicholas Reg R-O-E-G, don't know how to pronounce that. This movie came out and Roald Dahl and Jim Henson died that year, which probably a bad omen. But <laughs> Dahl, Dahl was incensed that the director had changed his original ending in the script. And as a gesture of consolation or conciliation, he offered two film versions before he made his final choice. The book version where Luke, the boy, remains a mouse and the happier version where he's transformed back into a human. Upon watching the scene loyal to his book, Dahl was so moved he was brought to tears. However, the director decided to go with the changed ending, which led Dahl to demand that his name be removed entirely from the credits and threaten a publicity campaign against the film. However, he was 
convinced by Jim Henson not to do that. Yikes. So that's like a, a super dick move. It's like, hey, do you want uh, this or this? Oh, I'd really love this. Like, that's the best thing ever. Well, fuck you. You can't have that. Here's the thing that you hate. Damn. To be honest, the ending is really, it, I think it fucks up the movie. And I know he just wants it to be a happy thing, but the director showed the original cut to his kid. And his kid was didn't like the ending, and so he changed it. Mm. As a parent, that's just terrible parenting. <laughs> you got to scare the shit out of your kids. My sisters loved this movie growing up. And keep in mind, I was born in 1988. So by the time they showed this to me, I had to maybe have been five or six at the time. And all I remember was it was not made for kids at all. It is no, very dark and terrifying. Yeah, the little boy gets killed very quick and another one's turned into a mouse instantaneously i'm like wow this is not hocus pocus by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> different kind of witches here mm-hmm. it's enjo- it's an, an entertaining movie it is definitely not a kids movie but the cult status of it will keep it around for a long time probably if it weren't for angelica houston this movie would have faded away nobody would give a shit about i agree it. I don't disagree with him. Something about her in this movie, and I think a lot of people, no matter who it is, you mentioned Angelica Houston, and especially, I, I would say majority like females, uh, millennial females, and you mention the movie, they'll be like, oh, Angelica Houston, absolutely love her in this. Like That is exactly what they tie to her, and why when you mention her name, they're like, I love her. I don't think many people are like, oh yes, Wes Anderson is why I love Angelica Houston. <laughs> but... You know, it's it's this and Adam's family. Those are the reasons why yep. people recognize her and they say that they love her. Yeah, I mean, she pretty much owns from eighty five to ninety six. So, I mean, that's that's her when she's in her prime. It's her sweet spot for for roles over those years. Yeah, she's played like a witch or uh, some sort of variant of that in five different movies. So clearly, she knows that she's oh. she's good at pulling off the mysterious the creepy the dark and mm-hmm. disturbing kind of role and this is uh another one of those roles where Cher was their first choice and she was busy doing something else and so angelica stepped in and, and probably pretty good for her career at that point even though she had already won an oscar and been nominated for another by that time thanks warren so the next eight years again a lot of a lot of work and a lot of good work she's in the grifters 1990 if you go to her imdb page this is you know, when it says movies associated with an actor, this is mm-hmm. the first thing, not even the witches, this is the first thing that pops up. And she got an Oscar nomination for Best Actress, not supporting, but Best Actress in this one. This movie is over 30 years old, and it holds up pretty well. If you don't get fixated on the random old car from the 80s, or the massive supercomputer, a.k.a. a Commodore, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to tell when this movie was made. It's basically about... This trio of grifters, Angelica Houston's the mother of John Cusack. They're both grifters. And then John Cusack is in a, I guess, a relationship with Annette Benning, who's also a grifter. And all three of them have these different, like, kind of these different hustles going on. And, and it's kind of about how the, the hustles kind of play off of each other and conflict with each other. And, and more or less, you know, John Cusack is, is kind of torn between... His hot girlfriend, Annette Benning and his tricky and slick mother, Angelica Houston, who works for a, a really powerful mob boss. And what I thought was interesting in, in her role 
is she places bets to the mob boss to affect the odds on these horse races. And so in light of our uh, most recent uh, Reddit GameStop stock manipulation that uh, it, that was going on at the racetracks back in the day. She called this the most challenging role of her career. And I read a couple lists that had this had her role on it as like the 100 best acting performances you need to see before you die. Really? So, yeah, she looks back and says that that what it required was really tested at that point in time in her career. Good for her. That was a good performance. Yeah. And then 91 Adam's Family, the first of two Adam's Family movies with Adam's Family values that came around a few years later. She got a Golden Globe now for Best Actress. I haven't seen the Adam's Family in who knows how long. Easy 20 years, right? And it's had such a pop culture impact that I probably would have gone on not watching it for the rest of my life if it wasn't for this podcast because I just felt like I already knew everything there was to know about it. Like they've made a cartoon about it that came out recently. And then I rewatched it for the pod and it is not what I remember. And it is a enjoyably weird movie. I don't know how they marketed it to kids. I think it's silly enough that kids can laugh at some of the jokes, but like a good portion of the jokes are about like murder and death and her and Raul, uh, Julia, uh, Gomez are, mm-hmm. they steal every scene they're in, they steal it. And it's just like these mm-hmm. two creepy, horny people who don't <laughs> care about like murdering everyone around them. Cause they just desperately want to fuck again. <laughs> Dude, it's funny. Like I, I was watching it. It's like, like, I don't even know what the plot is at the moment, but I'm enjoying this because she's talking about how like, Gomez isn't the same anymore. Uh, you know, last night he coughed up blood and her neighbor's like, oh my God, he coughed up blood. She goes, yeah, not as much as he used to. You know, the passion's just not there anymore. <laughs> just like, There's no way a little kid hears that joke and laughs. And I, I laughed watching it. But these movies are like, they shockingly hold up because they're so absurd that the time period doesn't really matter. What is he doing where he's like, don't torture myself, Gomez. That's my job or something like that. Like that's, <laughs> that's the kind of banter that they have and they make jokes about like red hot pokers and stuff during Dude, sex. Like it's- the poker joke was so funny. Cause like he, uh, she's tied up and the people who are trying to rob them have like heated up a poker. And as she's tied up, they're going to like put it through her and he comes and he saves the day. And as he's like trying to untie her, he whispers, he goes, Oh my God. You know, you're tied up in red hot pokers. Oh my god! And she goes later, later, honey. Like we'll do it later. <laughs> yeah. You know, like we we have to take care of this first. He's like, okay, okay, okay. Adam's family popularizing BDSM in 1991. Dude, like power to them. Their chemistry is what like drives the movie, where it's like silly and stupid, and you don't know where the plot is going, and everyone kind of plays like a haunted house character. And then the one thing that's like kind of normal is how abnormal it is that these two want to fuck the whole time mm-hmm. well i think it's it's kind of like it's kind of like a movie that we reviewed earlier in the brady bunch just like because this was a kid show obviously when it was on so they mm-hmm. there were no jokes about this so that what they they took it in into the 90s and sort of injected these sex jokes and uh stuff that obviously would have gone over a lot of kids heads but made it made it likable for adults too because they found that funny so i thought it was a pretty pretty genius way of doing it the interesting thing I learned reading about it was, you know, she's kind of known for a character having her eyes like they're like pointed up kind of high up her. Mm-hmm. And she ha- she called it super long and arduous filmmaking because they had to, to achieve that effect. They had to like tie 
put this thing into her scalp so she could pull her forehead forehead back the entire time. And I can imagine after day one, you're like, this fucking sucks. This yeah. hurts. I, th- I think I read but, that as well, where it was like they taped ugh. it so that her eyes were always up. Ugh. That sounds brutal. And not just to do it for one movie, but to do it for two movies. Bravo to her, because that, that is a very beloved franchise at this point. I think the movie's played a big role in that, especially her character um, alongside Gomez. So over the next couple of years, she's one of, what, like 60 big name actors who are in The Player in 92. The movie's known for having, like, I think the most cameos of Hollywood actors of any movie. No, I thought that was that skit with the ShamWow guy. What was that movie thirty three or some shit? Oh, like movie that? movie forty three. Yeah, forty three. Oh, I was off by I was off by two yeah. movies. Yeah. <laughs> she's in another Woody Allen film, Manhattan Murder Mystery. She gets a BAFTA nomination for Best Supporting Actress in that one. She's in Family Pictures, a miniseries where she plays alongside Sam Neill and a young Dermot Mulroney, and uh, she gets a Golden Globe nom for Best Actress for that role. So I mean, she's just firing away in the early '90s right now. Adam's Family Values, another Golden globe nomination for best actress and the bad and played on the crossing guard she gets a golden globe nom for supporting best supporting actress in that one i mean she's just one after another getting all these major awards at least recognition not necessarily winning all of them but recognition and then uh, she's in buffalo girls as calamity jane in 95 another miniseries rocking a southern accent that's not too bad and another emmy nomination for outstanding lead crazy early 90s early to mid 90s and then she has her directorial debut in 96 with Bastard Out of Carolina, where she got a primetime Emmy nomination for Most Outstanding Director. It's got really high ratings. That's that's what I noticed looking it up. Good for extremely high ratings coming out of the gate. Uh, first of three that she directed. And then uh, she's in Ever After Cinderella Story as the kind of evil stepmother type of character in that one. And she looks the part, and yep. her line reads are so scathing in that one. Like, just... a a really good casting on their part for her. They probably wrote the character kind of with her in mind at that point because she's mm-hmm. cornered the market on being the <laughs> like creepy, creepy witch. Asshole. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. After Adam's family and the witches, they're like, you're mm-hmm. going to be perfect for this. And that takes us to the largest audience gap. And that's Agnes Brown, 99, and James hasn't. I was shocked to hear that Bastards out of Carolina had such good reviews because Agnes Brown... Is also directed by Angelica Houston, and this movie's not good. <laughs> so it led me to believe that she's a better actress than she is a director. And bear with me while I get through this synopsis. The unexpected death of her husband sends the woman, Agnes Brown, who's played by Houston, and her seven children, ages between 2 and 14, uh, into emotional turmoil and financial crisis in the late 60s in Dublin, Ireland. She is forced to borrow money from a loan shark to make ends meet, and she sells fruits and vegetables at an open-air market uh, where she spends most of the time with her best friend who's trying to kind of encourage her to get through this hardship. And here's where I guess the big plot turn comes. It's uh, wishing to escape her existence, if only for a short time. She starts dreaming of finding enough money to attend a Tom Jones concert. Uh, and that's that's right you heard that correct there's more tom jones coming y'all oh yeah and if uh, you almost fell asleep during that synopsis then you understand my struggle watching this movie uh it's boring man it feels like it came out in the 70s even though it came out in 1999 it rarely made me laugh or like care too deeply about the characters because 
when there is hardship, they throw some jokes in there, but the jokes like kind of fall flat. So you don't know really how you should feel at that moment. Kind of had a made for TV movie feel to it. The audience score is a 71 and I am strongly on the critic side, which is much lower at a 40%. I don't know. This is probably a passion project because uh, it has to do with a time frame in which she was growing up in Ireland and she probably saw these hardships, even though she didn't experience the socioeconomic part of it uh, herself. But like, it just, dude, it's just a boring movie, man. Like, it's just, I, I couldn't get through it. And yeah, Totten, she, uh, spoiler alert, she goes to a Tom Jones concert. Yeah, cool. You weren't convinced when Tom Jones saves the day at the end and gets her out of financial hardship? Like, she borrows money from the loan shark and then she pays it back. And it's like, okay. Good and then her, then her shitty kid borrows money to buy her a dress and ends yeah, up it's uh, like, almost getting them evicted. It's like, all right. Like, I, you know, kids make stupid mistakes. It's like, all right. Like, I don't know. Like, I don't care. You know? like, it's just, it's not that deep of a story. Uh, yeah, it just wasn't that enjoyable. Uh, so it made me kind of question that she was good at directing because I do like her as an actress a lot. Uh, but this, this was just not an enjoyable film and you have no reason to see it. Just for clarification, she does play the title character, Agnes Brown. Mm hmm everybody so she it is actor director on this project there's no reason to spend more time on this movie i agree i'd rather talk about the adams family some more to be honest <laughs> <laughs> all right well that wraps up the 90s for um and we go into 2000 to 2010 and i will say she's very busy but i think we're gonna fire through this pretty quickly you know she's in the miss of avalon she gets a primetime emmy nomination for best supporting actress in that one she plays Mick Jagger's client and the man from Elysian Fields. And then she starts her run with the Wes Anderson films. So she's in the Royal Tenenbaums as Etheline in 2001, which I hadn't seen until this podcast. So I, I marked off the last of my Wes Anderson movies. I used to give Warren a lot of shit that he loved Wes Anderson movies. And in rewatching the Royal Tenenbaums, that is a funny movie. It's good. I, res I take back some of my Wes Anderson hate. <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums is funny. No way to, to uh, you know, to pretend it's not. Uh, Hackman's character is hilarious. Mm -hmm. Hearing that he was a absolute unbearable dickhead on, on set was actually yes. shocking to me. I didn't expect that, but his character is such a piece of shit in that movie that's so funny. <laughs> Maybe he was method. That's, that's my guess. Time, he's such a douche in that movie, but he's hilarious. Yes. That's a great cast. It's an awesome cast. Gwyneth is great in her role. Yeah, I'm not a big Wes Anderson fan either, James. Um, but I would say this, of his movies, this is my favorite. She's great, and Hackman is too. Ben Stiller. Ben Stiller and his kids. Yes, with the jumpsuits. Yeah. Yep. It's an iconic movie, and rightfully so. With that cast, I don't really know how you could screw it up, but I'm glad they oh. did because it's oh. a good movie. Others have figured out ways, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. To extrapolate on your point, James, you know, she had in particular, had some issues with Gene Hackman to the point where the scene where she slaps him, apparently she slapped him so hard at one point in one of the takes that it left a huge handprint on the side of his face because he was being such a jackass. And she, uh, she's like, oh, this is my opportunity to just hit the shit out of Gene. Wasn't it because he was, like, talking shit to Wes Anderson? I think Isn't so. that what I read? Where it's like yeah. he was kind of critiquing the director of the movie and how inexperienced he was? Mm-hmm. All right, so... Also in 2001, she was originally cast with Alicia Silverstone to be in Heartbreakers, which eventually went to Sigourney Weaver and Jennifer Love Hewitt. And no one's really quite sure, but Gene Hackman was in that movie. And my guess is because of her issues with Hackman on Royal Tenenbaums, 
that they uh, pulled the plug on that one. That's my theory there, that he may have said something and said, don't cast her because I fucking hate her. Who knows? She slapped the shit out of me one time. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to go with that. That sounds right. But then over the next couple of years, we're just firing through these. She's in Daddy Daycare, Iron Jawed Angels, got a Golden Globe win that time for Best Supporting Actress. Um, another Wes Anderson film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Sissou. Uh One of my favorite scenes of hers is when she talks to Jeff Goldblum at the beginning of the movie, and she's just asking questions. Like, she's not flirting with him, just, like, saying hello. And clearly Jeff Goldblum has a thing for him, and Bill Murray comes over there and is like, can you not talk to my enemy, please? Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like that's my rival you're speaking with, honey. Please don't talk to him. That's, that's three fun actors and a bunch there with Murray Goldblum yeah. in Houston. Then she directs another picture in Riding the Bus with My Sister in 2005, which has abysmal ratings. Her directing started on a high note and slowly went down from Agnes mm-hmm. down to this one. And then, again, more Wes Anderson. She's in the Darjeeling Limited as Patricia. A really interesting role. Short hair, like gray hair. Plays a mother in that that particular movie. And she's pretty good in that those scenes that she's in. And then she's... When gets a primetime Emmy nomination for guest actress on Medium in a couple appearances between 08 and 09. And also is 08 is when her husband, Robert Graham, passes away, which affects her in a lot of ways, especially when it comes to how she does, takes on projects. She's in Choke with uh, Sam Rockwell in 2008, and she's in the first of, I think, a seven or eight different Tinkerbell projects as uh, Queen Clarion in 2008, a Tinkerbell movie. If you like them, they're all on Disney+, and you can watch them there. All of that finishes up the 2000s, and she enters into the 2010s with a stellar performance. Um, well, I guess we'll find out. Ugh. In the lowest critic score of Horrid Henry the movie, and Case is overwhelmed with enthusiasm to talk about it. The fix is in, you guys. It doesn't matter what category Rigby has. He gets the best movie every time. <laughs> That's not true. I think we all agree on that, yeah. I think Rigby had flipping Godfather one time as the lowest critic score. So, <laughs> I, don't, I don't get how that works. Rigby's over here watching Braveheart, and I'm watching movies that no one's ever seen before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the number of views you know, the three times you tried to watch it and fell asleep. <laughs> that being said, I do the dubious task of reviewing Horde Henry, and there's two interesting side notes about my viewing of the movie. Number one, the highlight of my viewing was the commercials on IMDb TV through Amazon Prime, <laughs> and the other part was <laughs> the version I had had one review, and it was a one star. And the only thing I regret about that is that I couldn't have gotten there first to do the one <laughs> review and one star of this movie. So it's a 2011 British children's comedy directed by Nick Moore. It's based on the popular children's book written by Francesca Simon. For a long time, Horrid Henry was actually the second most popular children's book in England behind Harry Potter. And then this next fact brought me memories of Warren's review from last episode about the movie Emoji. <laughs> When that movie was the first movie to be released in Saudi Arabia in 35 <laughs> years, <laughs> they got to enjoy that treat. It's some sort of artistic warfare. <laughs> the British film fans uh, were treated to their first ever children's 3D movie in Horrid Henry. I'm really glad that I only had to watch this in 2D because that would have been one more dimension that would have made me... I'm going to get through this quick. There's not a lot to talk about this movie. It's basically about a troublemaker kid. Guess what? He hates homework. He has fake hatred toward girls. 
And somehow him and his friends want to save the school by being in a punk band, you know, because every punk band in the world has aspired to save their uh, elementary school. Very much goes against the punk <laughs> mentality. Yes, it does. Well, I thought the class, didn't the class try to save Oxford University one time? <laughs> yeah, closing? yeah, that's what they were well known for is their support of uh, public <laughs> higher, higher education. Yeah, big, yeah. big education, guys. <laughs> All the children characters in this movie have annoying alliteration names. And a lot of times they're acting out what their alliteration name is. And the most egregious one of all of them was a character named Aerobic Al, who, yes, you guessed it, was doing some form of exercise every time that we saw him, and he was out of breath every time he talked. And that sums up the the, the cast and the characters of this shit you, show. You've never met a skinny kid named Al. Let's be honest. <laughs> Every kid named Al. There was another who was like Lazy Linda, and it was this girl who was yeah. asleep in every class. <laughs> yes. Houston plays the villainous teacher, Mrs. Battleaxe, and she's mean. Great name. Yeah, what a fucking brilliant name. That's like a wrestler name. Yeah, that's an <laughs> unbelievable name for a bad teacher. She's good in it. In, in an interview I thought was interesting, she said, um, found this role to be irresistible because it was so crazy and outlandish. And when she started the project, she was actually, like Kyle and probably the rest of us, was unaware how popular the children's books were because she didn't have a bunch of kids running around the house. And that actually speaks to how she played this role as the badass battle axe with no, like, just complete disconnection with these kids, because she's not around kids, and so it was easy for her. Long story short, this isn't a good movie. It's basically, like, an hour and 30-minute TV show. Do you think now she would be upset that we're talking about it and telling a, a potentially wide audience that this exists? Uh, okay. no. Nah. <laughs> I think she's going to feel the same way she did about her first movie, where... <laughs> She's surprised that anybody watched it. That's yeah. true. That check still clears, man. So I don't think she gets a shit. <laughs> That's true. If it's as popular as the book series was, maybe maybe there's an audience yeah. for it. Sorry, Case. And it happens. Not to Rigby, but it happens. Yeah, yeah. You'll watch the sequel for the next podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as the highest critic score. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I could, heaven forbid. I don't even want to know which actor that's going to be. If that's highest critic score, we're in trouble. I kept writing forward Henry, and I went back to – kept thinking of Hardcore Henry, which – didn't you do that one too, Craig? I did not. No, but we did cover Hardcore Henry, which – I just talked about it, yeah. Oh, ahead of its right. time. That's right. Tim Roth episode. That's right. That was actually supposed to be my lead-in joke. <laughs> Was that it is not the sequel or prequel to oh, well. Hardcore Henry. <laughs> Next time. They should make a crossover with, with Hardcore and Horde Henry. Fuck, I would pay to see that. The Henry Universe, baby. Let's go. The HCU. I want to see it. Can you imagine that little shitty little kid? Blown away. <laughs> the whole school. Horde Probably Henry's the only a- one that survives is Mrs. Battleaxe, to be honest with you. <laughs> He's a QA non-conspiracy theorist. <laughs> Making light of a shitty situation. Thank you, Craig. The 2010s, we're going to fire through this. Uh, she is in 5050, which we obviously talked about on, our, on episode one, the OG with JGL. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember her character. I, I think believe she plays his mom, right? Yeah, she's his mom. American Dad. She is the narrator for... A documentary about Burma, which is something that she's done a, quite a bit of in her personal side from a humanitarian angle. She <laughs> judge accordingly. She won PETA's Person of the Year in 2014 
for the work she did with the great apes and also changing the horse-drawn carriage uh, industry in New York City. That's sweet. Any initial thoughts when I say that? Anyone who at this point doesn't understand that PETA is trolling with a lot of their statements on social media just to garner attention and clicks and views is a sucker because PETA, when you hear of the actions they have taken, you're like, okay, yeah, I get that. And then when you see the statements they make, everyone's like, why would anyone say that? It's like, because, because of this conversation. When PETA came out and was like, you shouldn't say kill two birds with one stone, you should say feed two birds with one scone. Oh my God. And everyone's like, I'll never change what I say. It's like, right, because they're fucking with you and you don't understand <laughs> that they're fucking with you right now. I went from hating on PETA to getting the joke and I think their social media manager needs a raise and a promotion because they're hilarious. Drawing attention to him. People are paying attention. Absolutely. She did a show called Smash, played a character named Eileen from 2012 to 2013. And she said that that particular role came at a really crucial time in her life, filled a void. You know, it was a couple of years after her husband had passed away. And I think she was struggling at that point. I mean, she chose to do Horrid Henry. So I think she was not in a great place. That's supposed to be a joke. That's funny, but I guess it didn't land. Uh, well, no, it, it was it's probably accurate. <laughs> yeah. Is it too real? Maybe it's too real. It might know. be too real. <laughs> um, <laughs> but after that, a couple episodes of BoJack Horseman, big gap, 2014 to 2020, and probably the coolest work that I've seen her do in the 2010s. She was in two different seasons of Transparent um, as a character named Vicky. She plays Mora's partner in that. She has a double mastectomy in that, and that's so obviously a really powerful show and i am a props to her for taking on a character like that at that point in her career it's a great show it's about jeffrey tambor oh okay has a late age transition from male to female um he's like in his 60s in it and it's about his family and how they react to it and it, it's a very interesting family dynamic because while he's going through that the kids are dealing with a lot of stuff too it's it's a good show she's in the cleanse in 2016 She's the narrator and executive producer of Thirst Street with Bill Pullman. She continues her Wes Anderson universe um, roles in Isle of Dogs as a mute poodle. Isn't Isle of Dogs a no. animated? Yeah. Yes. It's like a, almost like a stop motion esque mm-hmm. type movie. Yeah. She's not actually in it, but I guess she guilt tripped Wes Anderson after he basically forgot about her. Or maybe he just <laughs> didn't forget about her, but she harassed him enough to where he credited her as a mute poodle in the movie. Okay. So she doesn't have any lines, but she uh, <laughs> she basically threatened That's hilarious. Him and and <laughs> she's like, Wes, I'm gonna be in your fucking movie, so put me in it. Yeah, I respect that. Yeah. Like so Brad good for Pitt, her. Brad Pitt and Deadpool too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think she was. You know, it's like one of those clubs. You, the uh, Adam Sandler Club, you don't want to get left out. So she's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm going to be in here because I don't want you choosing some young actress and putting her in your next movie, which seems like we'll talk about here in a little bit. She, seems like she made the right move. And then she was in John Wick Chapter 3, Parabellum. She played the director, which is also a pretty cool role for her in, at this point in her career in 2019. And the 2019's kind of in uh, Angelica's I don't give a shit era where she just, people ask her questions in interviews and she just doesn't care anymore. Like she openly criticized Diane Keaton and Jackie Weaver to, for being in the movie Palms in 2019. And apparently there's a huge public spat with that. And you could find other interviews where she, at this point, she's like, I don't really care. I've been in here, this industry long enough. People know I'm good at what I do and I don't really care about burning any bridges. I respect the move. I think you reach an age in, in especially in Hollywood where you can get away with that. And she's doing it. <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. she is. Yeah, she <laughs> I mean, is. Hollywood 
you have to assume half the people you're interacting with are like the fakest people you've ever met. Right. So you cling to those who are authentic. And then when someone asks you like, how do you feel about this? You're like, not looking for any more roles anytime soon. So let me tell you, this person fucking sucks. <laughs> yeah. Especially, I think if you have a 40 plus year career too, I mean, you're going to burn some bridges. So you get, you reach a point where you just, right. doesn't matter anymore. I just wish that after the public statement went out from Houston about we, Diane Keaton and Jackie Weaver, that they came back and put a joint statement that said, bitch, you were in Horde Henry, shut your trap. <laughs> just hoping for that. Be like, yeah, we, we're in a shitty cheerleading movie. What do you want from us? We're trying to get paid. Last little tidbit she wrote, she's written two memoirs, a uh, story lately told that was released in 2013 and Watch Me 2014. So if you want to learn even more crazy stories about her life and growing up and who she's around, check those out at your local bookstore or wherever you get your online books and that brings us all the way to 2020 and to rigby's top performances list what do you got rigs all right this is from our favorite coming soon.net and go oh that's our boy list 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 is this one from upgrade this is from upgrade <laughs> <laughs> Upgrade. give me the 10 best roles of angelica houston's career according to coming soon.net who wants to take a stab and i think we mentioned all of these when was it released? I think 2018. So this won't include John Wick, but the way that you guys described it, she probably doesn't deserve to be on there anyway. So <laughs> She's not in much of it. Okay. It's the Adams Family. Yep. This is not in numerical order, by the way. So it's just, it's just 10 total, total ones. But Adams Family. twice or no? Uh, it's just the franchises in here. So that's one. Okay. That's fair. The Vitches. Yes. Grifters. Yeah. Prizzy's Honor. Prizzy's Honor is not on here. And she, oh. I know. Her Oscar win didn't yeah, make it. Yeah, no Academy Awards. Her Oscar win did not no, make enemies it. Enemies a love story. No. Damn. Ever after. Nope. Crimes and misdemeanors. Lonesome Dove on there. Both Crimes and Lonesome Dove are on here. Damn, I gotta watch Lonesome Dove again. Yeah, she's pretty good in that. Tons of people talk about how it's like one of the better Western miniseries uh-huh. ever made. Iron Jawed Angels. Uh, nope. Manhattan Murder Mystery. Nope. Hmm. Give us some hints here. Any Wes Anderson projects on there? Yeah, I think we were missing some. You're missing Tenenbaums. two. Tenenbaums is not on here, but you're missing two other Wes Andersons. Darjeeling Limited. Yep. Yeah, she's good in that. Life Aquatic? Life Aquatic, yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Her role's way so, smaller in that. Yeah, yeah, I would say that one's very minimal. Sus. <laughs> I, I think what? we're missing two more. Is it movies or TV? Oh, daddy daycare. <laughs> uh, movies and one of the movies is features a fellow Munson. Oh, choke. Nope. Oh, we only had a couple crossovers. So uh, a movie with a crossover. Who do we miss? Oh, 50, 50, 50, 50. Oh nice. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. Sense. Yeah. Very good movie. Last one um, was in, I think 98 was when this movie came out. 98. Uh, with another Adams family character. Buffalo Girls. Oh yeah, with Buffalo '66. Oh yeah, yeah, with Christina Ricci. Yeah, that was the. I think that was the one movie on this list that we maybe didn't even mention. It's got pretty good reviews. I mean, seventy-five on Rotten Tomatoes, but just a kind of a small movie that she she plays. I had it originally in the the show notes. I deleted it for time. She plays a terrible mom who doesn't remember that her son is allergic to chocolate and tries to feed him chocolate like years later. A little bit different. Of those that we just announced, what would you guys say you think is her number one since it's not numbered? Adam's family. It's Morticia. Yeah, definitely Adam's family for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Even though it's not the most glamorous of roles, I think that's a 
that's definitely what she'll be remembered for most. I feel like. No question. Like I said, there's still, and James said, there's there's there are movies that still sort of stand the test of time. At least according to us. I don't know about according to other people, but I enjoyed them, and I enjoy her role in that. So. It is months and meter time. The way we do this, every actor, we rate them on a scale of 0 to 100 based on a variety of factors. Those factors could include their longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, their awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedy chops, box office success or lack thereof, and anything else that really matters to us. I will get us started this time with Angelica. I like Angelica. I think she's goes under the radar because for folks, I think, our age, her heyday was 85 to 95 to around 2000. Other than Adam's Family and the Witches and some of those, we probably weren't watching those at that time. And she's been steadily busy. I'll give her credit over the years. She's talented. She's a model. She didn't, you know, she's directed some good, some bad. She's a writer. She's got a ton of awards recognition from, she's won the Oscars. She's been nominated multiple times for Oscars, but Golden Globes, Emmys has done all of those things. You know, she's a good humanitarian, you know, won some awards for that. She's worked with eight Oscar winning directors over her career, which I think is really interesting. Wow. Yeah. The more I watched her stuff, I realized she's, she can be a little bit of a chameleon when it comes to accents in different types of characters, whether it's going back to her roots, Irish, English, Southern, across the board. And her favorite show right now is Shit's Creek. And so, James, you can judge that accordingly. It's a great show. Wow. But the 2010s are, are pretty brutal. The last decade, outside of Transparent and maybe John Wick, I think she's run into a kind of a little bit of a wall of her career. I guess 50-50 falls in there, so that's good. With all that said, I don't think she's very funny from a comedic standpoint, but she gets pretty strong scores across the board for me for a lot of the other pieces, especially range and longevity. So I'm going to give her an 81. Warren? I think that her pop culture impact can be boiled down to like two or three roles. And I, I just don't really care about anything outside of them. Um, I've seen some of the ones that she's got the uh, Oscar nominations and stuff from or Golden Globes with like Iron Jawed Angels. We had to watch that in high school. But for me, all I want to see her in is like black and playing something devious and I think that's what everybody expects out of her as well. And she's got a very you know dry sense of humor. So Wes Anderson really fits with her delivery and her style. But she doesn't have huge roles in those movies. And she is a star in some movies, but she's still just a supporting actor in a lot of them. And I also think that, yeah, while she is the third generation of like Hollywood royalty, I genuinely want to know what she would be doing if she was just born in like a normal family. But she's the pop culture and everything there, long, longevity, all that. You know, me personally, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, the biggest fan. I'm going to give her a 69, A, because I think Gomez would like that. And B, um, I, I think I, to take Rigby, I think that's a pretty fair score. Nice. James? You guys have said a lot of it. What I'll say is Morticia Adams is a character that is going to define her career for the rest of her life. It's why she has a star on Hollywood Boulevard. It is quirky and campy and dark and funny and sexy all in one, and she rocks it. Um, I think that is her pop culture impact, and I think that is what will be how people remember her forever. Um, her awards footprint is 
one of the better ones that we've covered on this podcast. I think that's where a lot of my points come in here. Yeah, she's older now and she doesn't get a lot of main roles, but she is still in major motion pictures with uh, kind of her relationship with Wes Anderson. Based on her career longevity and pop culture impact and the awards that she has locked in, plus the fact that she's had a hard life and seems like she's relatively down to earth when she could have gone off the complete deep end based on some of the things that have happened to her, I'm going to give her one point less than Kyle and give her an 80. All right, Rigby. Uh, yeah, you guys have hit all the points. She's obviously got a family tradition in Hollywood. Memorable roles, so pop culture knowledge. She gets points with me there. Um, she's got the Academy Award nomination. Obviously, she's been around for 40 years. I think that's that's pretty impressive, to, or more, longer than that. I mean, almost 50 years in terms of major roles. Um, I think that's pretty impressive. So she's going to get an 81 from me. All right, Case, round us out. You guys uh, have pretty much said it all. I'm going to give her a 71. All right, Warren, what do we got? Angelica Houston, a 76.4, which puts her at 11th between Rami Malek and Christine Applegate. Right outside the top 10. Ooh. How do you feel about that, Rigby? Very fair. Yeah, I think it's fair as well. Yeah, it's good. Well, she is right on Malek's uh, heels. Like point point two points behind him. He has not gotten uh, very good reviews on his new movie. Yeah, yeah, I've heard nothing but bad things about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're saying he in particular, not a great cast. That's what I've read a lot of. You mean the the director of The Blind Side doesn't make a good murder thriller? <laughs> very surprised by that. Uh, yeah. Anytime that we we ward give us a, the score average, I think to myself, "Oh fuck, that is way too low." And then he says, "Who they're by," and I'm like, "Oh, that's pretty accurate." <laughs> all right warren well what is she got coming she's in this little movie that might be like the most stacked cast of all time called the french dispatch uh, that's wes anderson along with timothy chalamet saoirse ronan elizabeth moss tilda swin owen wilson edward norton adrian brody francis mcdormand oh christoph waltz william defoe bill murray benicio del toro reeve Shri- schreiber jason schwartzman angelica houston henry winkler jeffrey wright jesus that budget has to be incredible. I think a lot of the people just do it because they want to be in yeah. one of his movies. Maybe they're taking the Wes Anderson discount yeah. at that point. Timothy Chalamet looks like he was like built in a lab for Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, I get that. Can't wait to watch it on HBO Max. Hell yeah. That's true. Yeah, I mean, we would have already seen it by now, but, you know, COVID making our lives challenging. Well, we'll see. I mean, I think that goes to show where she's at. A lot of other actors we cover... You know, like I got eight projects coming. She's just, you know, she's got French Dispatch, so I think she's being, she is not compelled to do as much work as she once did in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. So good for her. The pent up demand from COVID is going to be crazy when like all these movies are actually released. Mm-hmm. It's going to be like a good movie every week. I feel like we'll see. All right, we got five actors we're throwing on the wheel for episode thirty. Yeah, episode thirty is on us, boys. Those five are Kate Hudson. William Hurt, Michael Stolbarg, Asif Mandi, and Marissa Tomei. Oh, man. Tomei's number one, and Kate Hudson's number two. Yeah. I did just watch Tomei and the Perez family, which we didn't mention today, but if we get to cover it, James, as a Tomei fan, you will absolutely love that role because she is a smoke show in that movie. She's a smoke show in every movie because she is a smoke show. Yeah. This is true. Marissa Tomei deserves respect from everybody. <laughs> Timeless. Can we give more than a hundred? I can't. I don't know. <laughs> I would love to do Stolbar just because his path to success, I think, is really fascinating. 
because he was like a nothing for years and the last 10 years he's exploded my guess is if it's john john's doing it he probably picked it because john and mark both speak uh twin language (laughs) (laughs) a scientific term i like stolbark i didn't pick anything i don't i don't know who we're covering but i'm hoping it's stolbark is it bad that i would dread kate hudson i would why would you dread that that's bad and that's why it's awesome (laughs) <laughs> somebody needs to watch fool's gold somebody needs to watch how to lose a guy in 10 days somebody needs to watch i'll watch bride wars again oh yeah how to lose a guy in 10 days is a pretty good movie was she in a scary movie yeah well, she was she in was. the skeleton the skeleton, skeleton key. Key. Oh, that's what yeah. I, was, I was gonna say the wicker man i was like no that's not right that's uh that's Nicolas cage, all Nicolas cage. <laughs> one of those twist movies like Shutter Island that everybody was notorious for. William Hurt would be good. I don't know what he's been in lately. He's got a lot of good ones, though. He's been in way too much stuff. Some of his stuff from the 80s is fucking awesome, though. only stuff I can remember right now is his Marvel stuff and also uh, Into the Wild. Yeah, as his dad. He was his dad, right? Yeah, but that's all I can think of He's right like now. one of the worst characters in Marvel, too. Thunder, <laughs> Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. And then if we do Asif Mondi, you know, we'll laugh. We'll laugh a bunch. He's not in a ton of stuff. He's supporting in a lot of things. He's probably not going to get a great score from us. But Potentially he would be funny. Potentially, if we did cover him. But as you always know, we don't get to make that decision. The wheel decides. All right, next episode will land on February 25th. We will be joined once again by the other half of the Rigby duo, John Rigby. Some would say the better half. I can't say who would say that. I know they both look like shit. Yep. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> Last time we did it, he was here with me. So he's he's back in California. So we're going to... Uh, a little harder to pick his brain this time about what he's going to say. Uh, it's been weird hearing you record and not having... Uh, hearing John play Madden in the back. Yeah. So <laughs> tweak out about getting his ass kicked in Madden in the back. I'm excited because, you know, Warren wasn't here the last time we had Rigby times two, so he'll get a chance to try to parse through which Rigby is talking right now. Good luck. That's right. You weren't here for that, were you, Warren? Uh, no, I was not. He was not present for the Allison Janey one, but hey, he's going to get his shot here. Well, John will be great. We'll have a good conversation, and y'all can guess in the meantime who John would pick from that list of five. As always, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on instagram munson's at the movies you can email us munson's at the movies at gmail.com any final thoughts from munson's you're disgrace you're good for nothing world munson's out all right let's go thank you for the education gentlemen we've just received a phd in stupidity doctor shall we